Bibles to Psalm 54. Psalm 54. We're given the background for this psalm in the introduction. Where we're given the inter- instructions for the musical instruments to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? And so just as a little bit of context, there's two places where these words are uttered in 1 Samuel. The first is in 1 Samuel 23 in verse 19, where we see then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gabeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us at the, in the strongholds at Haresh on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshmamon? And then in chapter 26, in verse 1, again, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gabeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshma? So just as a background of this uh, situation or this, uh, what took place with David and the Ziphites, David was on the run from Saul. And the Lord revealed to him that he needed to save the people of Keilah. They were under attack um, by the Philistines. And so David inquired of the Lord, should I go and rescue them? The Lord said, yes. And then David's men said something to the effect, but they'll turn us into Saul. And so David inquired of the Lord again, shall I go and rescue the residents of Keilah? And the Lord once again says, yes, I will rescue uh, these citizens through you. And so David rescues them. And then they, of course, turn David into Saul. So Saul is seeking after David, wants to kill David. And David goes and does a noble thing in protecting a village of people. And they go and turn on him. He goes then to the area of Ziph which is a mountainous area in the Judean countryside. Jonathan meets him out there and and encourages him. And then the Ziphites turn on David and say to Saul, David's hiding amongst us. Now what's interesting, nothing is really known about the Ziphites, except for that Ziph is in the Judean wilderness. David is from what tribe? Judah. So it's likely that David um, is trying to find refuge in a place that he's familiar with, a place that maybe people might know him and may take to his side. Because remember, before he became uh, king over the United Kingdom, he was king over just Judah for a period of time. And so what we see is that even in Judea, they are turning on David. So it's almost as if David has nowhere to turn. Uh, He rescues people, they turn on him. He goes into Judah, his own people turn on him. Saul is continually going after him. He's at war with the Philistines. So you can kind of get an idea of the historical background of David when he writes this psalm. So let us hear what he writes in verse 1. Oh God, save me. By your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. 
for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies, and your faithfulness put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is the word of God. I want you to notice the divisions here. The first division is a prayer for deliverance in the first two verses. Now, again, David's life is in jeopardy. There are people that want to physically kill him. This is not David having a bad day. David's in hiding. His life has been threatened. The priests were slaughtered already. So we see there's a trail of blood following David, this mighty warrior of God. And so as a, almost a point of desperation, he prays out to the Lord, Oh God, save me. By your name. Now, the name of God is a revelation of God's character and God's nature. So, when we see the name of God, that is to say, this is a reflection upon who God is. We see this come up often in the Psalms, and we should automatically think of when God reveals Himself. To Moses in Exodus chapter 34, where we read this in verse 6 of Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is how God reveals himself to Moses. He reveals himself not only as a holy God that demands justice, but a God that is merciful, a God that is gracious, and a God that is steadfast in his faithfulness to his people. So you see both things. We tend to focus on the beginning of verse 6 when we see the name of God revealed as merciful, gracious, slow to anger. We say, yes, that is wonderful. But we also can't forget that he's a just God, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so David is appealing to the very character of God when he says his name. So if you see the word name or the the title name for God, what that is, that is a representation of all that God is, just in a very simple, condensed way. So not only does David appeal to the name of God, But then he goes on and gets specific in his description of God. He says, vindicate me by your might. And so David, if you had to to label the attribute that David acknowledges in this prayer, 
it would be the, the attribute of God's power, his omnipotence. And so David is appealing to God's power here. And there's something we have to understand about God's power. God's power, as we say, it's one of the omnis, it's omnipotence. That means his might, his power is inexhaustible. His power cannot be measured. His power cannot be diminished. We can measure accurately our power. And we can also, by way of testimony, recognize that our power is in a state of flux and at some point starts to diminish. That's how we experience power. God is not such. God is independent. God is not dependent. All power that we experience in this life is derivative to something else. You think of a powerful vehicle. It's dependent upon gas. You think of us. Any power we may have, it's dependent upon fuel as well. It's all dependent. God is not like that. And so we see a statement of God's power, and we should understand that it is independent. All power is derived from Him. You see a glimpse of this in Job chapter 39, in verse 19, where God is is just simply asking, do you give the horse his might? Think about that for a second. Well, of course not. You do not give the horse its might. Who did? God designed the horse with the might. The horse was always a, a picture in the Old Testament of power and of strength. It was always a temptation for the people to trust in the power of a horse, particularly the war horse. And so you have this picture of a great strength that is contained in an animal, and God is just simply asking Job, did you give the horse its power? No, you didn't. You see, all strength, all might, all that we have is derived from God. And so when David appeals to God's power, he is appealing to something of God that he has revealed to us. Has God revealed to us that he is all-powerful? Yes. We say these things that God's all-knowing, God is everywhere present. God is all-powerful. But I want you to notice, this is flowing from David's mouth in prayer to acknowledge that God is powerful. And he's saying, God, will you vindicate me by this power that is inexhaustible, that is independent? And he asks for a vindication from this. That is, that God will judge this situation in his favor. And to do it according to this power that God has. This is a prayer that's relevant for you and I. Is to ask God for vindication according to his might. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 36, it says, For the Lord 
will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining. You think about that. We've already illustrated that our power is diminishing. It can be measured. And God says, when your power has gone, I will vindicate you according to my own power. Which is to say, God will vindicate his people according to an inexhaustible stream of infinite power. You see in Psalm 135, the same thing for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. That's a promise not only to to David. That is a promise to God's people. If you are in Christ, God will vindicate his people. He will vindicate you against all your enemies. And when he asks for vindication, there's something we have to know about God. That is for God to judge the situation. God shows no partiality. In fact, God commanded his people in Deuteronomy 10, 17, that they would not show partiality for God himself does not show partiality. God does not take a bribe. What is David then, if we had to boil this this question down, what's he asking God to do? He's asking God, will you do right by this situation? Will you do right? And he says, oh, verse 2, oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. I, I want you to notice what's happened. Save me by your name is the revelation of all of who God uh, has revealed himself to be. That's the revelation of his name. He appeals to that, which means we, we can know something about God. He appeals to God's might, which has also been revealed in Scripture, that God is all-powerful. So think about this. God reveals himself to us as gracious, as merciful, steadfast in his love that he is just, he is holy. God reveals that to us. But what does verse 2 indicate to us? Not only that God reveals something of himself to us, but that we can actually go to God. God communicates to us and expects us and allows us and invites us to do what with him? Communicate to him. Don't miss that. David's appealing to the very nature of God. And then in this very next sentence, he reveals to us that we can go to the Lord. We can ask him to listen to our words. We can ask the Lord to hear our prayers. The one that has inexhaustible power. This is a pleading with God. I want to apply this in a couple of ways, these two verses. David appeals to the nature and character of God as revealed in Scripture. He's in a prayer. This would be sung. This would be worshiping. And David, in his prayer, actually speaks the attributes of God back to God. Now, on Wednesday nights, we're we're starting to get into the subject of prayer. And one of the the things that I'm, I'm going to stress is that what you see commonly in the prayers of Scripture, especially in the Psalms, 
is that when people go to God, they actually pray back his attributes to him. That is our acknowledgement of who God is. Now, we could look at the attributes of God as an intellectual or theological endeavor and think about all of the nuances of who God is that he is he's revealed himself and we could read massive books in fact there are massive books there's let's see two volume book written by Stephen Sharnock the Puritan two volumes on the attributes of God massive volumes we cannot exhaust what could be said of God and his attributes, but this is not an intellectual exercise, is it? This is a man that's life is in danger. This is a man that is in need of God. And in his prayer, he actually finds comfort in the attributes of God. Have you ever thought of it that way? Thinking of God's attributes? Not as just something that we pray, but actually saying, God is all-powerful, that's comforting. God is sovereign, that's comforting to me. And, And reflecting upon what that means for our life. And that's what David is doing. He finds comfort in the attributes of God. And perhaps, maybe this is why God has revealed himself as he has to us, as a means of comfort. And David is acknowledging these things. There's something about God's attributes. God is his attributes. God is his attributes. God is love. He's not part love. He is love. God is holy. He's not part holy. So when we see the attributes of God in Scripture, we're actually seeing the picture of God. God is his attributes. He is identical with his attributes. And that has how he has revealed himself to us. And so the study and the reflection of God's attributes then is actually to be reflecting upon God. And these are all meant to be a comfort for us, to teach us who God is. David also teaches us something important about our relationship with God and the nature of God. God has revealed himself by his name, who he is in a way that we can understand things about God. Can we understand God? No. I can't even understand my iPhone. How am I going to understand an infinite, incomprehensible God? We will not understand God in heaven. God is infinite. We will forever, everlastingly be learning about God. We will wake every morning in the new heavens and the new earth learning truths of our God. We will always be excited about it. He is inexhaustible. But yet, what do we also see? We can speak to this God. 
we can come to him because he sent his son to us to pay the price for us that we could have relationship with him. Our God reveals himself to us that we may come to him for mercy and for help, just as we heard this morning in the sermon. David moves in verse 3 to describe his enemies. We see three attributes that describe them. Verse 3 says, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Now, strangers, usually when that's used in almost every context, it's referring to foreigners. It's referring to those that are outside of the covenant of God, that, that do not know God, that are not part of the family. They're strangers. They're outside of the covenant. Now, we don't know much about the Ziphites, uh, but they were in Judea. So there's that idea that they might have been Judean. And so if that's the case, then David is saying they are outside of God's covenant and they do not know God. Or if they're not Judean and they are some sort of Canaanite or Perezite or Amorite or some sort of otherite, it means they're not part of God's people. They're foreigners. Either way, he's saying they are those that are outside of God's covenant. And so if this is the Ziphites, he's making a startling statement about them if they are Judean. That's the first attribute. They do not know God's covenant. The second, he describes them as ruthless. And what it means to be ruthless is that you show no pity. You show no mercy. What a contrast As David appeals to the very name of God, save me by your name, from these people that don't show pity, but you have shown yourself to show mercy. You have shown yourself to be completely opposite of these people. Not only are these people that are showing no pity, but they're seeking to gain favor with Saul. If we rat David out to Saul, we can get favor with Saul. We can go after David. We can maybe advance ourselves a little bit here. Our community projects that we wanted, maybe Saul will fund those here in the Ziphite land. That's what they're thinking. They do not know who David is as God's anointed. He says they do not set themselves before Uh, do not set God before themselves, which means God does not guide them. They're outside of God's covenant. They show no mercy, so they're violent, wicked people that want to kill David. And then we see that that God does not guide them. Now, this, this shows us the gravity of David's situation. This group is not bound by a fear of God, nor do they have a conscience. Think about this with me for a second. They're not bound by God's word. They look at God's word and said, we don't need anything about that. But they also don't have a conscience. I think you and I both know people that are not bound by God's word. They reject God's word, but they have a conscience. They might do morally good things in some sense, But this group is different. Not only do they reject God's word as a guidance to them, 
but they reject the law of God that's written upon their heart. They suppress it. There are people that reject God but have conscience, but here the description is of those going after David are those that have no restraints upon them. Are there wicked people in the world? Absolutely. What do we see here, though? Even when things look the most bleak, God is still our refuge. God is still our strength. And understanding the root of their anger, of their wickedness, is actually helpful. Because what do we see of wicked people in the world? They're without God. But you know God. You're in a better place than the most powerful, richest, prosperous, wicked person in the world. No matter what they do to you, God will vindicate his people in his might. The powerful, wicked people of the world have no clue what's coming. Just like these Ziphites that would oppose God's anointed David. Now you see David make a statement in verses 4 and 5 that God is his help. It's beautiful language. He says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Very much reminds you of Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd. But here he says that God is my helper, and the Lord is the upholder of my life. How funny it is in God's providence, we read in John 5 to open the service about how life is in the Father, and that the Father has granted life to be in the Son, and that the Son grants us eternal life. Life comes from God. David says that God is his, his, his helper. And David knows that his own strength pales in comparison to God. This is David that conquered Goliath. This is David that's, that is, with his bare hands fought lions. And this is David that recognizes that God is all-powerful and his actual help, and that he is the upholder of life. That is to say that God sustains us. This is to be supported or to be upheld. It means to be unshakable. Let me give you an example of that idea of upholder of life and how it's translated in Song of Solomon. In chapter 2, verse 5, Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. Now that word sustain. How are you and I sustained? In just a very practical way. Are we not sustained, so to speak, with raisins and apples? Yeah. We're sustained by food. So the idea here in this is a dependency upon food to be able to uphold one's life. Now, that same word now is applied to God. That it, it's not nutrition that upholds my life, but it's actually God who is the upholder of my life. And that's what David is appealing to here, that God is the one who upholds him. God is the one who nourishes his soul. God is the one who sustains him. And therefore, if God sustains him, it's like he's being propped up. He's unshakable. That's the meaning of the text. God is the upholder of life. Nothing 
exist apart from God. And so David says, then in verse 5, notice the confidence, he will. This is to say something in the future that will happen. He will return the evil to my enemies and your faithfulness put an end to them. Now, remember he'd asked, Lord, vindicate me. What does he say in verse 5? God will vindicate me. So before the prayer is even answered, in verses 5, verse 6, and verse 7, David states confidently as if God has already accomplished this. That God will vindicate me. Specifically, God will return, he asks, the evil to his enemies. So the evil that they meant to perpetrate against him, it will come back on his enemies. So that evil that they're going to give to David, God is actually going to give back to them. So David, in essence, is asking God, will you return evil to them? That's what this vindication looks like. Psalm 79, verse 12 says, Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which you have taunt, they have taunted you, O Lord. This is a psalm where David is actually asking the harm they meant for me, put it on my enemies. How many of you would feel so bold to pray that way? They're trying to harm me, God. I want you to actually put that harm back on them. I want to think through this for a second, because I think this is a theological difficulty. Especially as New Testament Christians. Psalm 52, in verse 5, David said, had written this, But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. One of the most difficult psalms to read. Psalm 137. Children of Israel are in exile. And this is that they're being taunted by the Babylonians. This is what they say. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That is the word of God. These are imprecatory psalms. An imprecatory psalm is when you call down a curse upon your enemies. And so I just return to that question. We see that it's in Scripture. Is this ever appropriate in prayer? Well, first thing is this. We wish all people to be saved. We're to pray for all people, right? We pray for all people, and no one can test this. I don't think anyone would argue you're not supposed to pray for people. I don't think anyone's saying, don't pray for the most wicked, tyrant, dictator. Actually, Paul tells us to pray for the most wicked, tyrant, dictators. 
However, though, we have to kind of balance this out with what we see in Scripture. There's times of battle where you can't actually talk it out. There's in the midst of the battle where you're actually striving for just what? Survival. Notice what Paul says to the church of Galatia in Galatians 5, 12. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's the word of God. Paul writes that to the Judaizers that would subscribe circumcision as a means of salvation, as a works-based system. Paul says, I wish they would emasculate themselves. Thus saith the Lord. Sometimes when you're in the midst of a battle, it changes how we approach prayer. There comes a point when talk is over. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus makes the same point. In Matthew chapter 7, in verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy. Now, we, we love dogs. They're cute. They're cuddly. We love to pet them. They're our best friend. First century Judaism, being called the dog was not a cute thing. It was an insult. Dogs were seen as dirty. Scavengers. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. What did first century Judaism think of pigs? Is Jesus speaking about dogs, and is he speaking about pigs? He's speaking about people. He says, don't give that to them, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Or consider this when Jesus sends them out in Matthew chapter 10. He says in verse 9, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals, or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town you or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town. Truly I say to you, here it is, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That's what Jesus instructs his disciples. I want to resolve this. It may be a way of guiding us in our prayer. But I want, to, I want to go to verse 6 and 7 first. Back in Psalm 54. He states these things as an accomplished fact, and he says, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. What's a, what's a free will offering? It's a spontaneous offering or sacrifice uh, to God. It was one of praise. It was one... Of, of, of a desire, a response to something of God. And notice the connection here of offering, praise, sacrifice, all 
related here to the name of God. It says, with a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks, praise to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Remember, he appealed to the name of God. And now, as he spontaneously offers worship to the revelation of God. What is worship? It is the response to God's revelation. God reveals himself, and we respond in worship, in praise. And so this revelation of who God is, and now notice what it says his name is. It says it's good. It sometimes can be translated beautiful. His name is beautiful. His name is good. His name is pleasant. And before David even receives an answer to his prayers, he already sees it as accomplished. Look at verse 7. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. David begins in dire situation of praying to the Lord and asking for the Lord for help, asking the Lord to bring back the evil upon them, and he concludes this prayer as if God has already done this. Now, what does David not do with the Ziphites? This goes back to how we understand the imprecatory prayer. Did David avenge himself? No. David was a battle-hardened warrior that hung out with battle-hardened men that could do some battle-hardened stuff. If they wanted to, they could have defeated themselves. This was not a sanctioned war. Would it have been fair for David to have retaliated to the Ziphites? Wouldn't have been fair to the Ziphites. They would be no match for David. You think about a superior army army and a superior nation invading a littler nation because the littler nation did something that was not right. Would that really actually be a sanction for war? No. It would actually be unfair. David does not go after them. He does not take vengeance. He does not take things into his own hands. If he had gone after the Ziphites, it necessarily would have drawn himself into conflict also with who? Saul. So put this together. David's not going to go and attack the Ziphites. And David has, this whole time, as he's being chased by Saul, he's continually not lifting a hand against Saul so that he would be innocent in God's sight. If he would have avenged himself, he would have then drawn himself into conflict with Saul. He refuses to do that. And so David actually showed mercy by asking the Lord to take vengeance upon them. Let me show you that we're actually told this same thing. Romans chapter 12. 
if I still believe that, that uh, David did, did this because you know, of their destruction uh, while it was happening, they probably blamed David? I, I don't know. Oh. Now notice what Paul says. He says in Romans 12, in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, this is quoted from Deuteronomy. So this concept of this idea that that God will repay Look at, leave it to the wrath of God. What's David doing? He's actually leaving this to the wrath of God. Look what it goes on to say. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, or so by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. doesn't say to remove that idea, that plea. That's very interesting. So are we to avenge ourselves? We're to leave it to God. When you put the imprecatory psalms in that context, all the psalmist is saying is what God told his people to do in Deuteronomy. That's all he's doing, is leaving the vengeance to God. You know, look, we, we face things in this world. If you push me, I'll do what? I'll push you back. If I push you, you'll push me back. That's how we, that's how we respond. Does God tell us to do that? No. He says, leave it up. To God. Vengeance is mine. That's what that's all that David is doing. There's one final thing here I want to point out. Like David, the victory is already won for us. We can say confidently with our God that He has avenged us of our enemies. We can have confidence because the Lord Jesus has vanquished all of our enemies. Yes, do we still face them now? Yeah, we do. But has Jesus already conquered? Yes, he has. And we're just awaiting for him to consummate his kingdom. But the victory is already done. It's already accomplished. Christ is already ruling. Christ is already sovereign. He is our prophet, priest, and king right now. And so the victory is accomplished in Christ. Whatever we're facing we can always be assured that in Christ we have the victory. Makes me want to sing the song, Victory in Jesus, because that is a truth that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ all things are complete and accomplished. He is the fulfillment of all of your word, all of the law. We thank you that in Christ and in Christ alone we have comfort, And that as you have revealed yourself as our all-powerful God, 
this was a means of comfort for us to know that you who are all-powerful are working all things according to the outworking of your mighty hand. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.